On the Record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC on News Talk. Plenty to get through uh, in today's programme. So let's dive straight into it with our quick potted tour of what's making the front pages of the Sunday newspapers. Uh, let's start with the Mail on Sunday. Charles plans All-Ireland Summer Tour. Um, that's All-Ireland of the, the non-Gaelic Games variety, but nonetheless an All-Ireland Tour being planned um, by His Majesty King Charles this coming summer. According to uh, the Mail on Sunday, government officials and security services have been tasked with making preparations for an official state visit by Britain's King Charles III this summer, the Irish Mail on Sunday has learned. It is understood that the planned trip to the Republic and the North of Ireland will be King Charles' first official state visit following his coronation in Westminster Abbey on May the 6th. His planned visit comes as preparations are already well underway for a likely visit of US President Joe Biden to mark the 25th anniversary of the signing of the Good Friday Agreement. Senior government sources said the coalition hopes for a year of reconciliation similar to 2011 when the late Queen Elizabeth and the former US President Barack Obama both made official visits here. A senior security source who was involved in the arrangements for the Queen and several US presidents said the usual protocols for preparing security have kicked in. We have been quietly informed by government officials, said this source, that we should start making the personnel and logistics preparations for a state visit by the British monarch this summer. It is actually helpful for us, this source says, that the US president is already visiting in spring as it will create something of a template for us. Already there's been some speculation within the force about County Louth being on the schedule of both Biden and Charles. Uh, the only thing I'll say right now, uh, mark it down, coming up to five minutes past 11 on March the 12th, there will be discussions by the end of the year about Angarda Siakana busting its budget this year if there is a visit by Joe Biden and King Charles because that is precisely what happened in 2011 because if you need all hands on deck, you're going to plough through uh, overtime budgets very, very quickly. So just chalk it down, you're going to hear it and if you do think that the visits are warranted, then that's the price you pay. Uh, Front page of the Sunday Times, two stories in the front page of the Sunday Times this morning. The sidebar uh, is that Enoch Burke's younger brother Simeon is in danger of not qualifying as a barrister because he is set to appear in court on the same day as his crucial final year examinations for his degree. Uh, Simeon Burke, who is a barrister-in-law degree student at King's Inns, was charged last Tuesday with breach of the peace following chaotic scenes at the four courts after his brother was unsuccessful in his efforts to overturn orders preventing him from attending the grounds of his former workplace, Wilson's Hospital School. Uh, the 24-year-old from Mayo, that's Simeon, uh, also missed his own mock trials in which students participate in annual simulations of real court proceedings in front of real judges at the four courts. And that's, again, as a result of his involvement in the disruption in the Court of Appeal. Uh, a classmate of Simeon Burke, who asked not to be named, says it had been surprising and disappointing to learn of his behaviour. Simeon never pushed his view on anyone or discussed them at all. I think he was well-liked, uh, said that student. Uh, The main story on the Sunday Times is about uh, the cost of hotels uh, in Dublin and elsewhere on St. Patrick's Day uh, and whether hotels are mocking uh, the continuation of lower VAT rates. Uh, A minister has slammed eye-watering price gouging by the hospitality industry ahead of the St. Patrick's Day celebrations. He says that it's a slap in the face to the government. Uh, The sector has been warned by the Department of Tourism, Culture, Arts, Guilt, Sport and the Media, I won't repeat that title, uh, that drastic price hikes by accommodation providers were hurting Ireland's international reputation. Uh, The VAT rate, as we know, was supposed to be restored to 13.5% at the end of last month uh, under plans announced in the budget, but the government did make a last-minute decision uh, to retain it at 9% for another six months. Speaking to the Sunday Times yesterday, Niall Collins, the junior minister for higher education, condemned the price hikes by some accommodation providers. Um, he says that the justification being offered by the hotel industry that it's about sl- supply and demand just rings hollow. Um, the Sunday Times has some some pretty eye-watering costs uh, for hotels if you want to stay in Dublin for the night of St Patrick's Day. Some accommodation providers 
We're charging up to €2,400 for single night stays in Dublin city centre for the weekend. Uh, Some of the rooms on offer consist of bunk beds. So city centre Skyline, which is a guest house uh, located at Eden Quay, and it's managed by Eden Quay Lodge, was charging a base price of €2,430 for a private room for just one night on St. Patrick's Day. Um, But that was a room that can accommodate more people. And for every person you want to add to the booking, up to a total of 14, you would be charged €70 additional. So one might surmise that it is a room which is capable of housing 14 people. But if you wanted the room to yourself, it would cost 2430 Then if you add another €70 Euro for each of the other 13 people that could be there, uh, you could be looking at an overall price of around €3,400 to house 14 people for one night. Uh, the same accommodation, by the way, has a base price of €442 Euro two weeks later uh, on March the 31st, just for illustration. Uh, moving on very quickly, the Business Post, a couple of stories in the front pages there. Uh, one which I'm sure we'll talk about later in this hour, which is that Eamon Ryan and his officials travelling to China for Patrick's Day have been issued with burner phones and have been ordered to leave internet devices used for state business at home. Um, they've He and his officials have already travelled to China for the St. Patrick's Day festivities, uh, but they travelled via Paris and they have left all of their devices in the care of the Irish Embassy in Paris for fear that there might be some surveillance exercised on any devices that they have when they do arrive in China uh, where Eamon Ryan uh, is conducting St. Patrick's Day business. The main story uh, on the paper today is that Patrick uh, Pascal Donoghue, uh, who was then the Minister for Finance, rejected a range of proposals to try and uh, stem the exodus of small landlords from the market. Uh, and now, now that comes, of course, as uh, some of those same ideas are now being assessed by his successor, uh, Michael McGrath. Uh, this comes as the government is now assessing the options to incentivise small landlords to stay in the market, including deduction of local property tax against any taxed income on rental properties, an exemption from PRSI or USC, a lower income tax rate, or an exemption from tax on the first €14,000 uh, of rental income. I imagine if they consider uh, suspending USC for landlords and for no one else, that there will be all sorts of political pushback to that. But the government's still looking at something. Uh, and finally for now, and I've deliberately left this to now because this is where we'll start with the newspaper review. Uh, the government feared that an extension of the no-fault evictions ban would have seen a dramatic increase in homeless numbers close to the European local elections next year, the Sunday Independent tells us this morning. The political motivation behind the decision to end the ban this month rather than in six to 12 months' time was considered at the highest levels of government. Uh, it can now be revealed that the very outcome uh, at least partially motivated the government to press ahead with ending the ban now rather than closer to the elections which are due for the end of May next year. The Sindo understands the issue was considered at the highest levels of government and ruled out partly over concerns that when the eviction ban was ultimately lifted, the resultant spike in homelessness would coincide with the European and local elections which are due to take place in May of 2024. Uh, to discuss those stories and more, join the studio by Dan O'Brien, who's the Chief Economist of the Institute of International and European Affairs. He's also a Senior Research Fellow at the Geary Institute in UCD and also by Elaine Lachlan, who is the Deputy Political Editor of the Irish Examiner. Uh, good morning to you both. Elaine, I'll start with yourself on that one uh, and particularly with the, the Sunday Independent front page. Uh, people will have varying uh, levels of how much stock they put in this but the idea that the government would step aside from a difficult decision because the consequences might coincide with an electoral cycle that's too cynical to be true or Mm. is it? Well I think every decision that any government makes is always political uh, but to varying degrees Um, we do know as well that the government parties will be concerned ahead of those local elections given the fact that Sinn Féin lost so many seats back in 2019 they had a dismal local elections and European elections it has to be said so given where Mary Lou Macdonald's party are in the polls now you would expect a massive increase in seats for Sinn Féin in the local elections and therefore a significant decrease for Fianna Fáil Fianna Gael and Mm. the Green Party who had that green wave during 2019 
2019 of, of local councillors come in. And, so and maybe it is itself, at the back of their mind. That wouldn't itself be the launch pad for the following general election as well because if you've got a slew of, of local election candidates and they all get elected then that makes them prime candidates to get promoted to the dole then in spring of 25. Exactly. Um, but I think it also has to come in the context of we do know in the weeks before that cabinet meeting uh, this week and it did go on for an hour more than expected. There was considerable discussion at that cabinet meeting with a number of ministers raising concerns on both sides of the argument. But the week before we certainly had heard at the Fine Gael PP a lot of TDs and senators coming up and saying that they believed that the ban should not be uh, extended for mm. any length of time. So I think there was pressure coming on the government parties from their own uh, certainly their own backbenchers. Yeah, uh, it's not just all about the electoral cycle. Um, Dan O'Brien, good morning to you. I don't know whether you wanted to, to lead off with, with that disclosure on the front page of the Sindo or, or anything else. There's certainly an awful lot of coverage in the papers today about the decision to end the ban on, on no-fault uh, evictions. Where would you like to start? Well, I, I'd like to draw attention to, uh, unfortunately, a banking crisis that's brewing. Uh, that in, in California on Thursday, mm. a very big bank... This is about Silicon Valley Bank. That's right. Uh, Uh, Does that relate to the housing issue? Because we'll make time to discuss that later in the hour if you like. But if you think think it has knock-on consequences for housing, by all means. If it it turns out to be as bad as some people fear, we know from past experience in this country uh, that banking crisis, and I'm not saying that we're going to have a banking crisis in this country, the banks are in a completely different situation. Mm. But if there's a global financial crisis, then it most certainly will have a knock-on effect. Your show, you decide when you want to talk about it. We'll talk more about maybe the knock-on consequences of Silicon Valley Bank because I know that there is some coverage and that you had identified that as something you wanted to cover a little later in the hour. So we we will get to that and its systemic meanings. Um, As regards just the the housing issue on its own bat, um, there's obviously plenty in the papers. Anything that jumped out for you this morning? Um... Nothing in particular, just the overall sense of gloom, which I share, I have to say. I, I'm feeling very depressed this morning, I have to say, with this with this American banking situation and okay. our own housing crisis. You look, there's just, unfortunately, you know, we were almost before the pandemic getting supply and demand coming into line. A lot of things have changed during the pandemic. Um, and now, frankly, there is no possibility that we're going to get the amount of supply and housing mm. to match the amount of demand. So we're looking at years of this being a problem. And that is, you think that that's unassailable no matter what kind of market interventions there might like to be from the government or anyone else, that there's going to be this mismatch for as long as we can The scale of the demand, you know, uh, uh, is just so great now, in part because the economy is booming. Like, a huge amount of this is because we have one of the fastest growing economies in the world. So when you have a very fast growing economy and you've got a lot of problems on the supply side, you're just not going to bring them in. So the government is not going to be able, no matter what it does, it's not going to be able to mm. make a significant change to this mm-hmm. issue in, what, the, in the medium term. What do you make then of the government's stated rationale that although they know that lifting this moratorium from the end of this month will result in undoubtedly a short-term increase of homelessness, that effectively it's the least worst option, that they have to either assess or accept a small level of homelessness arising now or a larger number if you bottle it up and wait for another six or 12 months. Okay, look, no, it, does anywhere in the world ban evictions? It, 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 it is a short-term emergency kind of measure that you put in place in extreme circumstances. You know, it's a little like prohibition in the US 100 years ago. We know alcohol has lots of bad consequences. Let's just have a law, ban it, everything works out well. We know that doesn't Not work. so much. Okay, so just, you know, banning bad stuff doesn't make the world right. And banning evictions is actually a bad thing because it tilts the balance of rights between renters and landlords too far in one direction. And when you tilt balance of rights too far in one direction, you're going to get negative consequences. And that is why around the world, people 
countries don't ban evictions because it's part of how a market functions. Do you think that it was the wrong thing to do then, even on the interim basis, when there was a situation that the government was running out of emergency backup beds? Because that was the, the stated intention. If the government is incapable of providing a social safety net, that the only thing it could do to stem mass homelessness in the short term was to do this as a short-term measure. Yeah, look, it, well, we, what we certainly do know is, and the figures show it is, that there is an exodus of people renting at homes. Now, you know, here we have some of the highest rents in the world. Like Ireland has eye-wateringly high rents. That would suggest to you, wow, there's a lot of money to be made. If the rents are so high, you should be able to make some money. Mm. So why are people leaving the market? Well, they're leaving the market because clearly there's a whole range of things that disincentivize people from renting uh, homes. That, that's just bad policy. If government is disincentivizing people from renting out homes at a time when there's a shortage of, in the rental sector, and it's really the rental sector, it's not so much the, 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 the house purchase side of things, it's the rental sector that is absolutely nuts in this country. And government actions have actually disincentivized people to rent out homes, mm. making it worse. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Elaine? actually the, the scale of that issue, uh, there's a, a good piece in the uh, the Business Post by Sarah Hamill from the School of Law in Trinity College mm. and she mentions just in 1991 only 8% of Irish households were in private were private renters. Uh, that figure has risen to almost 30% now. So mm. there is that pressure on the private rental sector. But going back as well, I think to uh, what the government did or didn't do this week. Yeah. We did have the ending of that eviction ban and then a, a number of promises, vague kind of details around what they're going to bring in uh, to help renters and help landlords as well. Mm. Um, and I think Nasa Horgan of the Green Party, who was critical of the ending of that eviction moratorium, pointed to the fact that while these things, these measures are being promised, there's very little detail around them. They'll require legislation. And again, in her piece, Sarah Hamill points to that um that measure that of first refusal yeah. that renters private in in private accommodation if the house that they're living in the apartment that they're living in goes up for sale that they would have first refusal they mm. would have the opportunity to buy it before it goes on the open market yeah so this is something the government is is looking at something which will require legislation to give effect to so it might be a few months away but this is one of the government's carrots if you like uh, yeah. while they're introducing the stake of allowing you to be evicted again yeah but she brings up I think an interesting point in relation to this and we will have to see the exact details they do have to be hammered out and 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 drawn up by mm. the government but she mentions in the in the fact that there will be an independent valuation provided to come up with the the price that the renter would have to pay to buy the house before it goes up on the market. She mentions that currently, you know, if houses or properties are CPO'd, uh, comp- bought from by local authorities through compulsory purchase order, mm. that if one party isn't happy with the figure that's arrived at they can go through arbitration and that system is in place. With this other measure, you would imagine if the renter thinks that they don't, perhaps they're not happy with the independent valuation and they allow it go on the open market, that would perhaps test that Hmm. open or that valuation. And you could see a scenario where a house is valued at, let's say, 250000 through independent assessment for the purposes of allowing the renter to buy it before it goes on the market. Yeah. They decide that's too much for them. It then goes up for sale and perhaps is bought for 230000 mm. Which is a level they might have been able to afford first time yes. around. Yes. Yeah. Could you potentially have legal difficulties or the mm. possibility of that former renter being able to 
to yeah. put in a, a, uh, something of legal challenge yes, yeah exactly. and, and it's fascinating as well because you could argue on the flip side often when a house is advertised that it never sells for the amount that's listed as the asking price there's often a bit of a bidding war between prospective buyers and then it gets pushed up a little bit so you could argue that it also could be constraining the properties the owners the sellers uh, ability to mm-hmm. make as much money as possible if they are required to commit to a certain price from their current tenant whereas if they put it on the market there could be a bidding war and it could end up getting pushed upwards yeah and i think as well one of the issues that the government has raised is the fact that we do have these small landlords exiting the market in recent years and tens of thousands of them and flagging a measure like this could actually exacerbate it that in so far as that landlords will want to get out ahead of being forced uh, by this measure of offering it to the current tenants. Kevin in Old Town says the government should declare a state of emergency with regard to property rights. Um, whether they can do that, actually, when property rights already have constitutional protections, I'm not so sure. Uh, Noble Guardian is in touch uh, on Twitter. He says, um, I have a relative who has a second home, but is so fearful of not being able to get it back from the tenants, should they need to do so, that they've chosen to leave it empty for the use of visiting relatives. It's bizarre but understandable, uh, says that tweeter, which I suppose is is maybe understandable. I suppose you'd have to go through the mechanics of what you do in the event of needing to be able to remove a tenant. Certainly it's not something that's possible under the current uh, moratorium that's about to lapse. Uh, Sharon has been in touch on Twitter again. Sharon, turn off your radio. You're not going to hear anything you like in this programme. Uh, and someone has been in touch via WhatsApp to our brand new number 087-1400-106. They've said, please inform your commentator, I presume that is Dan, that other countries do ban evictions. Like in France, for example, where annually you cannot evict somebody during the winter months. So that texter, Dan, making the, the case that there are ways in which you can balance the, the rights of uh, the rights of property owners and the rights of tenants and that it's not really unheard of to have the sorts of measures that Ireland's had for the last five months. No, it's not unheard of, but, it, 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 you know, it, it, during the, a couple of months in the winter, is that a uniform ban? Uh, my point is the countries don't have uniform bans on evictions because if you do that, it has the unintended consequences of limiting supply. So, um, you know, there can be exceptions and partial periods, but the, the idea that you prevent landlords from uh, evicting people mm. is not going to help support. Uh, I know you mentioned your, your desire to talk about Silicon Valley Bank and some of the knock-on consequences that might have for housing as well. We will get to that. There's plenty more to discuss uh, in today's papers. Uh, lots of messages coming in about the uh, situation in the rental sector. One texter says that the population has increased by over one and a half million since 1991. That's probably why there's additional pressures on the rental market. Um, that is true, texter, but you might remember that there was also an awful lot of building done um, around the turn of the century and subsequently as well. So it's not entirely down to population growth although there is obviously uh, a bit of a mismatch uh, and one person sends in a whatsapp it says that the big pr- pr- um, problem rather excuse me is people using houses as pensions and expecting the tenants to cover the mortgage so that their pension property is fully paid off in 20 years so they've got a large pension unit uh, unlike in Europe where rented property is that over a long period of time uh, says that texter that's for oh it's seven four oh it's not I'm going to read that again because I'm going to made a, a, a hames of this already the number for WhatsApp if you'd like to get in touch is oh eight seven one four hundred one oh six that is oh eight seven one four hundred one oh six we're also on Twitter hashtag on the record NT I am at Gav Riley um, we mentioned uh, some of the coverage of Silicon Valley bank um which is something that dan wanted to come back to um dan there's there's a, a piece in the business post about the impact uh, for irish firms uh, from the, the the collapse of this bank um in the west coast of the usa but uh, you want to focus on that but also on the the other systemic consequences that it could have beyond just for the west coast of the us absolutely yeah so the charlie taylor's piece he cites a uh, a guy called brian fennelly from deloitte's a professional service company let me quote no one has a complete understanding of what is happening and how companies might be affected. Now, I think that puts it really well, and it puts it in a, in a wider context. I have never met anyone who understands how the financial system works. It is 
This does, does that include yourself? Does, oh, does, absolutely. Any, does anyone know how it works? No, no, nobody like, does. No, I, I wouldn't no. claim to for a minute. So, so that it's become this kind of myriad maze that no one really knows how to turn the machine off. Exactly. So it is this, we've created this ultimate complex system that people don't understand how it works. So when something big happens, we just don't know what the consequences are going to be. Hopefully this time next week, you won't be with your guests talking about a global financial crisis. Sincerely hope mm. that. We've been there before. We know mm. how bad that can be. How can it well, really affect people's lives? Especially so, because I'm just getting off a plane from Washington next Sunday morning and I'm going to be jet lagged as hell and I cannot get into a full conversation about the hard wiring of the global financial markets at that hour of morning. You you want simple stuff like the <laughs> Irish property market and, and, and the, yeah, yeah. the usual stuff. <laughs> so hopefully it won't. But the, the fact is that nobody really knows. This is a very big bank. There's $200 billion, billion. involved here. Billion. That's big numbers by any standard. Uh, we don't know what the knock-on effect is. So the immediate thing is that many of the tech companies bank with this bank. Okay. okay? So they have their deposits stuck in this bank and they use the, that money to pay their workers every week or every month. So is this they, ba- has this bank at this point collapsed or is yes. it in some kind of... So it is already... It's, it's gone. It's as, gone. As a, as so a functioning entity, as a going concern, no longer exists. It no longer exists. So, so are, are, is there such a thing as like a deposit guarantee like we have in this part of the world? Is there that there in the is. US? There is. To what extent? Okay. But only... Okay, so this this bank is almost two hundred billion in deposits, but n- most of those deposits aren't covered because why? Those big tech companies have millions of the bank. Yeah. The insurance only covers, I think, a quarter of a million. Uh, it basically is, okay. is to help individuals. It's not designed mm. to bail out big companies. So you have companies with maybe fifteen, twenty million who have that money in their mm. in their account. That's how they do payroll. Pay whatever, their payroll. Yeah. Okay, they don't have access to their money next week. So. Last Thursday, the American regulators went into the bank, shut it down. So they are now controlling it. What they do now is they try and get as much money out of the bank to pay the depositors back, but that takes time. So now there is this real fear that a lot of companies there won't be able to pay their workers, and that could lead to layoffs in the tech sector. But it gets much worse. So when something like this happens, other banks, investors start looking around at other banks and saying, well, if it's happened to this bank, the reasons it, it, it happened to this SVB could, not could, but are having effect on other banks, okay? Mm. And that the share prices in other banks, similar banks have fallen, and that's how panic starts. Yeah. People begin to think, wow, this is a contagion. Mm. It's going to spread across the Atlantic. We see in, in, in the UK, the tech companies have come out and said, it's an existential threat to UK tech companies. So there is now a fear that we're going to get into a contagion um, Mm. process. And that's seriously worrying and nobody knows where it's going to end. Do we know for certain, uh, and I'm trying to approach this for the benefit of listeners who haven't maybe been following the saga for the last three or four days, what exactly happened at Silicon Valley Bank that suddenly questions arose as to whether it could continue as a going concern? Was it overexposed to a vulnerable sector? No, no, it's really, it's a strange thing, right? So a a few years ago, uh, when all this money printing uh, and very low interest rates was going on at the sure. beginning of the pandemic. And even before that, we've had this long period of extraordinary low interest rates. Mm. So prices of all sorts of assets went up, property, financial assets. So banks have to hold some of their money. When, when you go and give your deposit to a bank, yeah. some of that money they've got to invest in safe assets. Now, what's the safest asset in the world? American bonds, American government bonds is considered the safest asset in the world. Now, because they were very inflated a few years ago, They have now fallen in value. This bank bought American government bonds, the safest assets Mm. in the world, but they have now fallen a lot in value. 
So that raised questions about the solvency of the bank. Mm. And then people were worried it wasn't going to be able to pay back its deposit because it had lost too much money yeah. on these bonds. And that's where and you then you start panic. to get a run on the bank. And then exactly. Okay. It was a run on the bank. And now the fear is that other banks have done the same thing. Well, the, I was going to say, because if that is the safest investment in the world, and, and we saw a little bit of this in the, the British equivalent, where suddenly you had a lot of uh, investors and a lot of funds and banks that were tied up in British sovereign bonds. And then suddenly when Liz Truss's government did what it did, the whole house of cards nearly came asunder. Yep. There's no reason to think that a lot of other financial institutions in the States would also be heavily exposed to American government bonds. And if they're yielding far less and if the value of those has fallen there, then you wonder about the security of all of their assets. And that's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. There there are big losses have been made. These bonds uh, were overinflated. They have now fallen in value. Many financial institutions and, and uh, insurance companies are nursing big losses on these. So how does that all play out? The truth is we don't know, but we do know that there was a... Uh, overpricing of many assets. Those assets have fallen in value now. So we are going to find out very soon whether the reforms after the 2008 crash to make the financial system safer have worked. We are That's going to be tested now. Uh, fun week to be going to Washington then. Great. Uh, there was me thinking that I was just going to be following Leo Varadkar and not in the eye of another worldwide financial storm. Uh, on a totally separate note, somebody who's getting probably as far away uh, from an Antipodean perspective uh, as possible from the US is Eamon Ryan, who is travelling to China for St. Patrick's Day. Uh, and there is a fascinating story on page one of the Business Post, Elaine, about some of the security precautions that he and his officials are going to have to take when they're on that trip. Tell us more. Yeah, and uh, this is the week where our entire government, uh, think bar one designated survival remains at home but everybody else is jetting off mm. across the world including as you said the Taoiseach to Washington Taunish will be in the US as well in New York but Eamon Ryan and actually his trip has raised a few eyebrows already before today insofar as he is a Green Party minister and is going all the way to China now he did say that he would be using the most environmentally friendly way and, and carbon efficient way of getting there mm-hmm. and back um, Maybe on one of the 9 million bicycles in Beijing I'm sure there'll be, perhaps, there'll be photographs we'll perhaps, see them Perhaps But yeah this from Daniel Murray and Lorcan Allen in the front page of the Sunday Business Post today is fascinating. Basically, they they left uh, in recent days to go to China for this uh, St. Patrick's Day schedule of events and have had to leave their phones, their iPads, uh, laptops in the embassy in Paris for safekeeping because they were told by security officials um, or received security advice that if they bring them, there is a chance, uh, more than a chance actually, they're, they're more or less certain that they their devices would be hacked, cloned or have software installed in them without their knowledge. Um, and they've been told to get what we call burner phones, the, the type of phones that you buy SIM only and mm. prepaid um, for the duration and to use those for the duration of the trip. So I think it probably feeds into maybe the the fear that we've seen at EU level around TikTok, uh, the use of TikTok. And also we've had um, CCTV, Chinese CCTV companies used in the European Parliament also questioned and indeed questioned in the fact that they're used uh, to monitor the Dáil Chamber and mm. and Leinster House campus as well. Um, so it's, it's it's a quirky one but an interesting one and probably a concerning one as well. Yeah, um, it is. this is by the way uh, is not just a, a flight of fancy on the part of him and his officials. This apparently is based on advice from the National Cyber Security Centre. Uh, a spokesperson for the government says that the centre doesn't comment on the specific technical measures in place to protect official devices and communications, but that it does issue guidance to government departments and office holders on the security of mobile devices, including additional precautions to be taken uh, whilst travelling. This guidance is based on risk assessments appropriate to the circumstances and is kept under continuous review by the NCSE. So we assume from that then, Lane, that they, they have made 
an educated call that in this particular instance, given the person who's going and the place that they're going to, that it's not safe to bring any devices at all, which is pretty striking advice when you consider it. It certainly is. And you'd imagine as well, it will have a significant impact on the work that uh, the minister and his officials can carry out because they won't have access to their usual devices. Uh, They will be using, as I said, these burner phones and perhaps, you know, a a one-off tablet or one-off laptop. They won't be able to bring their usual devices. Um, So it it may... stunt the type of work that they usually do uh, even if they are abroad in Brussels or other countries which ministers and their officials mm. uh, do on an ongoing basis. Uh, lots of, uh, by the way, it would sort of raise questions as to whether if there is any kind of a significant government crisis or issue that arises that they need to deal with in short notice. Usually these things are cleared by the three coalition leaders and if Eamon Ryan doesn't have his usual connectivity Beg some interesting questions. Um, mm-hmm. Lots of texts and tweets still coming in about the earlier discussion about the state of the rental market and the impact of the government lifting the ban on evictions. Uh, Stephen has been in touch by Twitter. He's using the hashtag on the record NT. He asks, uh, can you ask Dan O'Brien uh, if he thinks that supply alone is the way to bring down the extreme house prices at the moment? And if so, then why didn't it bring down house prices in 2006 onwards when we were building 80,000 units a year? That's a great question. Because the big difference back in the 2003-2007 period was there was this massive increase in credit. Banks were throwing money at people. So the demand was not just because we had more people, but because people were able to borrow a huge amount. Now borrowing is under much better control. So that isn't fueling the, the fire. So we had a double whammy of demand, people and borrowing. Now, the big source of demand is extra people. Uh, so that that's why back in that time we had this massive increase so in prices. So back then it wasn't necessarily a structural thing. It was just this kind of tulip bubble that everyone just well, everyone required much, it to exactly, be. Exactly. There was a much bigger, there was also also a huge increase in population at the time. But it, again, it was fueled by credit. And when the credit bubble collapsed, then the whole, as we know, okay. the market collapsed. Uh, Anthony has been touched to Twitter. He says, he says that uh, his son lives in Singapore, which had exactly the same housing problems. Then they banned Airbnb. The supply of housing increased substantially. Why can we not do that here? Uh, there are some moves uh, on the way, Anthony, to make sure that Airbnb properties are properly licensed or to try and redress that imbalance between Airbnb and uh, full long-term letting. Uh, but it's still something which is very much in the works. Uh, this is an illustrative message uh, about where things are right now. Um, Owen texts in. He says that he owns his own house in central Dublin with a mortgage. He's moving abroad for six to nine months later this year. Uh, he says I have reluctantly decided to leave my house empty during this time and not rent it out due to the evictions ban uh, even though it's been discontinued there's no guarantee he says that it won't come back uh, and in the meantime if it comes back in um, then there's no guarantee that it won't come back he can't take the risk so in a housing crisis a perfectly good house will be empty he can't really afford not to rent it out but the risk for him he says is far too high uh, which is a fascinating uh, contribution do keep them coming 53106 for your text or 087-1400-106 uh, uh, is number for WhatsApp. Uh, before we go to the break, um, there is a huge amount of coverage, as you'd expect, about um, the Gary Lineker situation. Uh, I know that ne- neither of my two panellists are massive uh, sports nuts, so I won't get into the uh, the nuances of um, his support for Leicester City in, in 2016. Um, but suffice to say, Elena, as someone who works in the media, it does kind of expose this very fascinating debate around whether someone can work for a media outlet, can have opinions about the area that they don't cover and whether that would still compromise that outlet's neutrality. Mm -hmm. And as you said, Gavin, I may not be the biggest sports fan, but I'm certainly fascinated by the politics of this Mm. all. And it it has uh, become very political within BBC, it appears anyway. And it does go back to that thing of, you know, the tagline that most of us have on the top of our Twitter, personal account views my own. What does that really mean? Um, And I think if you're a public figure, if you're in media, it means very little um, because you are expected to... uh, 
conduct your business in a certain way or certainly um, your views and opinions uh, perhaps shouldn't Mm. Uh, impose on the rules and regulations of the company that you work for. But I think as well, it's also um, significant in the fact that I think all of Gary Lineker's colleagues now are refusing to take mm. up the job this in virtual his absence. picket line that's emerged. Exactly. And perhaps it speaks to the personality of the man, the respect they have for him. But I think it will become a bigger issue for the BBC um, because it does appear at the moment that as long as Gary Lineker is in this imposed exile, no one is going to fill that gap. And there are um, contractual issues at play here um, that the, the, the BBC is contractually mm. obliged to provide coverage of the Premier League and if they're not able to do that they may be subjected to massive fines. Yeah. Um, there are also rumours that Lineker is being poached at the moment already by competitors and while you know he would be a massive loss for the BBC mm. it might actually be the only way that they can get over this controversy and the only way that they can fill the seat that he did occupy Indeed. before this all kicked off. Uh, fascinating times we'll wait and see exactly what happens with Match of the Day 2 tonight seemingly going to be a very, very bare bones uh, production just like last night. Loads of texts and tweets still coming in about the state of the rental market. We'll get to some of those in a couple of minutes. But we do want to discuss first one of the other stories that's making a bit of a ripple in today's papers, which is the prospect of a congestion charge and whether it would be the right way uh, to try and tackle uh, the country's uh, transport emissions. Uh, One idea which has been floated, of course, is the idea of making public transport completely free. But there was an intervention this week from Eamon Ryan before he left his phone behind and went to China uh, and indeed from the National Transport Authority, who said that making public transport free would result in an increase in what they consider to be unnecessary journeys. Uh, Mark Gleeson from Rail Users Ireland is with us on the line. Uh, Mark, what do you make of that claim? Would there be some some reason to suspect that you could have an increase in unnecessary journeys if public transport was free? It it doesn't surprise me. uh, Based on what we've seen elsewhere across the world, uh, when public transport is made free, people try to avail of it, certainly. Uh, But imagine you're at a bus, imagine you're walking to the shops, it's 10 minutes and and you see a bus coming or a Lewis coming and it's free. Well, of course you're going to hop on. Uh, so there is an aspect of convenience that people would want to use the service more to kind of get value for it. Uh, but that's not really what we want to do in public transport. We want to get people out of out of their cars. We want to get people to make short journeys on foot or by bicycle and long journeys using public transport. So there's a bit of a, a conundrum that needs to be solved within the, if we do free travel. Are there any other places in the world that you can think of right now that have, have managed to, to crack that nut? Because there are other places in Europe and elsewhere that do have uh, free public transport. Do they not just have exactly the same issues where people in, in Brussels or in Luxembourg are just hopping on the bus to save them a 10 minutes walk? Yeah, no, Luxembourg was the first kind of city kind of in Europe to, to move ahead with this. And they still have chronic tra- they still have chronic traffic problems despite introducing free public transport. Now that's somewhat an issue in the sense that if you're in Luxembourg, you're probably leaving Luxembourg, so free travel doesn't apply cross-border. Uh, it's been tried elsewhere, uh, but the, 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 the clear evidence that we've seen it's in the EY report that the NTA commissioned is unless free transport is, is matched with significant upscaling of capacity and frequency, that you're not really going to get a huge amount of benefit from it at all. Um, in the instance where, uh, and let's just presume, uh, I don't know whether this would be absolutely the case or not, but let, let's presume that uh, making public transport free or massively subsidised would result in massive investment in capacity of all forms. In that instance, then, would the idea of people taking unnecessary journeys simply be a cross worth bearing, that it's enough of a punishment that would still help you to achieve the overall goal? Yeah, if certainly if the capacity was there, um, then the concern kind of goes away. 
you know, if tomorrow morning we made public transport free, a certain percentage of people using a car would migrate to public transport. Because anywhere where good public transport provided, whereas in Dublin or Cork or, or Limerick, Galway, well, it's, it's, it's already full. So you're going to be displacing people off the system that are already, who don't have a car. So the, the capacity really is, is the real challenge. And the secondary challenge, of course, facing Ireland is our public transport system is, is pretty bare bones when you leave uh, the major cities and towns. We don't really have a public transport system that you can rely upon. So it's a fairly, it's a carrot and stick problem. You can't be without providing capacity, but if you provide the capacity up front without making it free, the train, the public transport will be busy. So it's one of those situations then where you just have to try and marry the two and do it hand in hand and in coordination so that you're investing in capacity at the same time as you're trying to encourage people to use it. Yeah, you, you, you need to, you know, in the context of Dublin, you need, you need the full Dark Plus project, you need the full Metrolink project in Cork, you need the electrification of, of Cork Cove, Middleton and up towards Mallow. There, there, there are things you'd have to do. But in conjunction with that, obviously, you don't have to make it free tomorrow morning. You could significantly reduce the fares on services and routes where that capacity is provided to incentivize motorists to get out of their car. Uh, it is making a big bang approach probably is the wrong, wrong way of doing things. Looking at it and going, well, we've now provided an excellent service in, say, Cork. Why don't we make it free there? And then progressing when it gets to Dublin, we have Metrolink or Galway where they have a commuter rail service there, Tap and Rye, or more sorted out. They make that free. It, is it maybe the prospect then that when we talk about free, that actually the idea of it being completely without cost for the end user at the point of use is maybe what's skewing things? That if you did. Um, massively slash the fares if you had something you know currently you have the two euro fare knocking around Dublin if you reduce that to something token like 20 or 25 cent or something that it might disincentivize people just hopping on a bus that's passing if they're walking to the shops anyway but it might be an aggressive enough move that would make people think about using something which is almost free anyway yeah I think you need you possibly need to go say say how it's been done in Austria an annual ticket is 365 euro it's one euro a day uh, that is a great, great deal, but you've got to pay up front to use it. Uh, so th- there's definitely something in terms of the fare structures. The fare structure in Dublin is an absolute nightmare. It really goes back to the trams. The intercity rail stru- fare structure we have for intercity journeys goes back to the 70s. There's been so many reports to fix these things over the last 10 years. The NTA, the sitting ground and just in the NTA's offices. So there's a lot we could do to streamline and improve the current processes we've got to make public transport more attractive to people. But the real challenge is we've got to provide more seats. And anything we're discussing today is, is irrelevant until more seats are provided. Uh, just briefly on that note then, before I let you go, what do you make of the the announcements, which which may be somewhat repackaged this week, about the idea of extending the DART out towards Selbridge and Hazelhash and all of the, the various grand plans that there might be for rail transport going into the future? Well, it's great to see that we've got, we've got Irish Health been given approval by the minister to submit their planning application uh, to go out to, to bring the Dart House as far as Hayflatch and Selbridge, uh, which is on the Dublin Cork line. And we, we're also progressing at the moment with the Dart West out to Maynooth and uh, Dunboyne. Now, these projects have been in the pipeline since 1975. Uh, so I think they've been announced about 20 times at this stage. Uh, people just want to see them built. And if they are built, that provides us, will provide an incredible increase in public transport capacity. And of course, it's not just Dublin, there's just similar projects for Cork, Limerick and Galway in the pipeline as well. Uh, but we really just need to see a move away from PR statements into ground being broken and serve an actual delivery of this to passengers on the ground. As I've said, we've been waiting since, in case of Dublin, since 1975 uh, for the direct expansion to actually 
we really started. <sighs> 1975 uh, there's a thought uh, we will let you go um, Rail Users Ireland um, joining us on the line Mark Leeson thank you very much for joining us uh, today on the record 19, I'm just I'm blown away by 1975 um, lots of texts uh, coming in uh, if we decided to use public transport there wouldn't be enough buses in the country there's about three a day from Limerick to Waterford and no trains either says one texter uh, someone else says would it not make more sense for the government to complete the rail, work in, uh, rail network in Ireland first before reducing fares Donegal is completely alienated from the rest of the country it's a disgrace and Nyland Limerick says if you make public transport free it will cause abuses you only have to look at what happened last year when the government waived school transport fees many long term ticket holders were left without a seat uh, says Niall and still huge amount of texts coming in uh, from people about the rental sector uh, largely pointing out that it's not just a problem for those at the lowest end that there are plenty of people on, on the average industrial wage and higher who cannot afford rental properties as they are and many people who say they're small landlords and they say that they're getting out because the, the, the tax on their rental income is far too high if the state takes 52% of your rental income and then they don't simply don't believe that it's viable otherwise. Um, we won't talk about that though for the last few minutes because um, today, March the 12th, is the anniversary of that day three years ago when Leo Varadkar walked down the steps of Blair House just across the street from the White House um, and announced the first COVID restrictions, including the closure of schools. Um, and Dan O'Brien, there's a lot written today in, in the papers about, um, again, fo- following up on this theme about whether it's time now to have a full inquiry into the state's handling of all of that. Yeah, and I think that's absolutely necessary. Uh our lives changed. It was probably one of the biggest things collectively we've experienced, probably bigger than the crash of 2008. And, you know, we need to assess, did we do the right thing? Uh, was it right to close schools uh, and weigh up the costs and the benefits? Uh, as many people say, it's not about, uh, you know, blaming people. But mistakes were, of course, made in, in such sh- short circumstances. But we, we need to decide, was it the right thing to do? Did we overreact? In my view, uh, we did uh, in many ways. Um, we're now living with COVID. Dozens of people die of COVID every week, which we don't talk about anymore. Uh, more people died of COVID last year than in 2020. Uh, mm, so we learned to live with it and we learned to die with mm, it. Well, it, it did evolve to a form which maybe makes it more easy to live with, though, that if it were still in the original variant, that it might not have been as easy to go back to the lives that we're living. Well, I suppose the argument is that we would have eventually come to herd immunity, which became a very controversial issue, which shouldn't have been. But the overall point is, if something like this happens again, at what are the trigger points we're using in terms of saying we are going to shut schools down and not let schools mm. uh, kids go to school? What At what point are we going to shut construction down where we can't build homes. Um, These are the sort of things I think we need to have a better Mm. sense of that if this happens again, what are the trigger points that we're going to use to make these sort of really big things that affect everyone's lives. Mm-hmm. But on the flip side of that as well, like a lot of the discussion and, and narrative around this in recent days and weeks has been, what did we do wrong that we could do right next time? Mm. But we could also look at what do we do right that we should be doing elsewhere? For example, we were able to almost overnight take over the private health system to alleviate pressures on our public health system, which is something that, you know, was unimaginable Mm. uh, before. So perhaps we should be thinking outside the box for areas like housing that we discussed in the first part of the show, Gav, um, around how could we do something drastically different that would actually make a a massive impact on issues such as housing and even the trolley crisis at the moment and the waiting list in our healthcare system. 
Uh, still a huge amount of text coming in about um, the Tennessee situation. I'll, I'll read one more before we just finish up on our chat about the Oscars. Um, I had a house down the country, uh, says one texter. Tenants wouldn't pay the rent. They destroyed all carpets and flooring, wouldn't pay the ESB. Eventually were cut off and left after seven or eight months. I'm sorry to hear that uh, for this landlord. I'm sure that's not the situation of, of every tenancy. But they say, I was out of pocket by over €8,000. Why would anyone be a landlord? A lot of crappy people let, let in situations that they act like they don't even know how to use a toilet, uh, says that person. Um, like I mentioned, in, in a couple of minutes left, and we we will be talking more with Henry McKean about this a little bit later in the next hour. Um, but um, Eamon Ryan is in China. Catherine Martin, his deputy leader, is in Los Angeles to really harvest the political benefit out of the Oscars this year, Elaine. Yeah, and there's a real buzz around the Oscars. Hopefully we won't be too disappointed this time tomorrow when we wake up tomorrow when all of those uh, awards are, are given out. Um, you know, I think people in recent days have certainly been downplaying the, the number of Oscars we may come back with, but hopefully, hopefully we'll will do better than anticipated but as I said there's a real buzz and I think uh, one of the things that I've been following certainly on Twitter is TG Cahard they're over there at the moment yes, obviously yeah. because on Colleen Kuhn has been nominated uh, and I noticed that they were able to it's been an ongoing I suppose joke on Twitter since the pandemic as well is the TG Cahar intern mm. uh, K-Hey or K-He, K-He intern TG K-Hey well it's, it seems like it's J.J. Abrams now of Star Wars fame because <laughs> he did speak Osgoelga uh, to G TG Cahar admitting that he is the intern um, <laughs> so it's 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 those type of little interactions that are happening over there that really are giving both Irish film in- industry and the Irish language uh, a world stage which has to be congratulated regardless of how many awards we come yeah. back with. Uh, nice to get a nod as well on uh, Shock and Gaelga even if it may possibly lose out to uh, All Quiet on the Western Front but we'll cross our fingers and hope anyway. Uh, Elaine Lockton, Deputy Political Editor of the Irish Examiner and Dan O'Brien Chief Economist at the Institute of uh, International and European Affairs. Thank you both very much uh, for coming in to talk to us and review the Sunday papers this morning. Uh, one text about public transport. Uh, Since train fares were reduced for youths they've been overcrowding and running amok on my local train so I've gone back to using my car. This is that texter which is uh, probably hardly really what we were all looking for in trying to reduce public transport fares but sometimes there are unintended consequences. On the record with Gavin Riley. Sunday morning at 11. Brought to you by PwC. Great minds think unalike. Different skill sets, diverse opinions, it all adds up to the new equation. On News Talk.